0: Yeah, this is Paul Ego here, and I'm on Bean Break with Blake, the best guy who hosts it. He's the only guy, I think. I think he's the only guy.
1: <laughs> Indeed. This week's guest, as he just said, is Paul Ego. So, Paul, let's get right into it. Who are you? <laughs>
0: who am I? God, what a big question. Who am I? So many people asking, them that quest, asking themselves that question nowadays, eh? So many people asking themselves that question. Who am I? I'm a mid-50s... New Zealand comedian slash sealess celebrity, who also does uh, voice work for a supermarket. And I've worked in radio and television.
1: Getting into that voice work for said supermarket, how did the role of playing stickman come around? Were you approached into doing it?
0: Yes, I was approached in the street uh, by somebody from Countdown. He said, hey, we want to sabotage, pack and save. Um, could you come up with a really annoying nasal voice that'll really backfire and people will really hate? And uh, I did it, and it had the opposite effect, and Countdown were calling me up. really quite livid, quite pissed off, going, that was a shit plan. I was like, ah, ah. Um, No, that's not obviously how it happened. Uh, I went for an audition with quite a few other sort of comedic, um, comedic people, and... Uh, and voice actors just got called in there um, through my agent to, to voice, uh, to have a go at voicing this new um, sort of take on the pack and save ads. Because they were always quite, from memory, quite budget kind of ads. It was always a yellow screen. And I think it was just the sound of items going across the checkout with the sort of beeping noise and the price would come up. But this is the first time that they had this character. So they just wanted like a sort of like a basic Kiwi character, I guess, kind of no frills to go with the supermarket, just very sort of monotone Kiwi sort of voice. So I just did it in my normal voice, which is this kind of voice, which I think we can all agree is incredibly sensual. Um, so I did, uh, I did it in that, and then, um, along with lots of other people. And then I was, um, I was just mucking around in the voice booth, just sort of putting on other, kind of voices while I waited for them to decide whether they needed me to do any more. And um, one of the voices I was doing as I was sort of filling in time was just this that sort of nasally kind of voice. Um, uh, not with the intention of using it for the ad, but they just heard it and said, Oh, that, that, uh, nasally annoying voice is, should we try doing one in that? I'm like, <laughs> okay, so uh, we did one of that and um, and sent that off and, yeah, Foodstuffs came back and went, that's the one we want. <laughs> so, yeah, it was kind of a nice little happy accident. It wasn't an initial plan, but it's turned out to kind of quite um, quite suit. I mean, when we first did it, it was kind of the first probably year or so, I think, or maybe even a couple of years. It was sort of like I was the narrator of the ad and I was narrating whatever Stickman was doing. And then eventually we kind of made the decision of, Oh, it should just be, that should just be his voice. It should be him talking. That's, and that's what it's been like ever since. In fact, I did some today, actually. I've come from doing that today <laughs> to, to do this, to talk to you. So yeah, I, I love them. They're a lot of fun.
1: How often do you record for a stick man?
0: Uh, generally once every, once every couple of weeks, sometimes once a week, depending on what they're doing. Um, sometimes if it's, you know, beer and wine week or, Meat week or something like that, we'll do quite a few in one go, and then other times I won't do one for, say, a month or so. You know, i will mm-hmm. just uh, play out what they've already got, but yeah.
1: Do you get people coming up and asking you to do stickman voices or say some phrases?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people do it all the time, and I generally say, Well, I can't. If I did that, I'd have to charge you 50 bucks. <laughs> uh, it's not, it's only about 20 bucks because it's pack and save prices, of course, but uh, sometimes I do it. I, I do a bit in my stand up about. Um, about my son's friends coming and asking me to do it and because I'm the father of boys and I'm aware that they they can be quite dense, <laughs> much as all men are really until, until, well, I don't think it ever really improves. So just various, various stages of ineptitude and stupidity. But, um, yeah, my son's mates would come up when they were sort of, I guess, early teens or even, you know, sort of 10 to 12 and ask me to do the voice. And so I would basically say to them, I'm sorry, I can't do the voice, but I'd say that in the voice, and they, would, they wouldn't they would get that I was doing it, so they'd ask me to do the voice and I'd go, sorry guys, I can't do the voice, and then they'd get really disappointed and leave, <laughs> just unaware that it had just happened.
1: <laughs> Were you able to continue doing the voiceovers during lockdown and how did that work?
0: Yeah, that was good actually. That um, That really kept Kept me, kept me solvent, to be honest, when all the sort of live gigs and corporate work that I would usually do got canned. Um, yeah, pack and save was the only work I had, so that, that was brilliant. So I was actually in this room that I'm talking to you from, which is just a kind of downstairs junk room in our house with spare mattresses and crap around. I don't know who sleeps in here. Somebody obviously has, but there's nobody else who lives here. It's a bit weird. Um, so, yeah, I would just be down in here with a big... Um, I'd just get a duvet, like a duvet or a couple of blankets, and put them over my head, and that would be that would be the voice the voice booth. So, it was quite hot work. It was very sweaty and uncomfortable, and you can slightly hear the difference between the ones that I do in a very high tech recording studio and the ones that I do with a um, with a fully feather down duvet over my head. But yeah, I was able to do them. But uh, yeah, it's. Not an ideal situation.
1: Nothing but the highest quality.
0: <laughs> That's right, mate. Yeah, double down. I think it was goose as well, so you can really hear that goose coming through. It's beautiful.
1: <laughs> did you manage to do any other type of work through the lockdowns, or was it just sitting around?
0: Oh, no, I tried to I tried to get out and sort of film a few sort of funny videos and stuff. Um, Three did a show called, um, I think it was Dye's, Dye's Comedy Lockdown, or Dye's Lockdown Special, hosted by Dyer Henwood. And... Um, just all us comedians who were sort of at home and really bored and really wanted a creative outlet, um, would just record various sort of, um, comedy videos and skits and stuff and, and send them in. So that was quite nice doing that. And, um, just over a few days, just sort of collating these little vids and, and making them up. And mine were kind of like a how to, of how to sort of survive lockdown or how to say hello to people in the street safely. (laughs) So I, am I'm no video editor. So it, it took me ages, but it, I I actually found that quite good to actually fill a few days because otherwise it is just, you know, as we all know, it's the same thing every day, right? What am I going to have for breakfast? I'll try and get out for a walk if I can. Oh, I might go and tidy that corner of my bedroom that I've left for 15 years. (laughs) Find another person under it.
1: How did you get your start into comedy?
0: I was sort of uh, bullied slash dared into doing it by my sister-in-law. Uh, my, I don't know why it went up at the end there, my sister-in-law? It was like I had suddenly forgotten I'd got one and I was really surprised. Um, she was living in the UK as were my wife and I at the time. We were living in London and um, we'd go and see uh, comedy on a Friday night, go to the pub and then go to a comedy room upstairs and see a stand-up comedy night and saw some great acts in the time we were over there. This is kind of like mid-1990s, so that sort of dates dates me a bit. Puts the rings around my trunk a bit, that sort of (laughs) date, uh, if you'll pardon the expression. And uh, yeah, we'd go and see these gigs. And then my sister-in-law started saying, have you ever thought about doing stand-up comedy? I think you'd be really good. You're as funny as them, which is very nice. And I thought she was wrong, so I ignored her for a long time. And uh, she just kept asking um, all the time, have you booked a gig yet? Why don't you book a gig? Have you booked a gig yet? And in the end, I just went, oh my God, I think I'm just going to have to book one of those open mic spots gig things just and just do one just so that she'll leave me alone and so I did I called up um, I looked in the time out the sort of uh, events magazine that they have in, in London and you know sort of found all the pubs and the open mic nights call this number if you want to you know try out some material coming along and try it out a bit like the raw nights that we have now at the um, classic comedy club and various other places and so I just called them up I wrote five minutes of material about topical events at the time which were probably things like Michael Jackson and whatever else was happening in the UK. Uh, And yeah, I, I went along and it was pretty good. I got laughs, got all my friends along there to see. They were most of the audience. I think there were about 16 people in the audience, 12 of them were people (laughs) I knew. Um, And yeah, it wasn't terrible. I didn't die my ass. I actually got laughs and I just, shit, I loved it so much. Just that feeling of people, I mean, obviously, they knew me, so they felt obliged a little bit, I'm sure, to laugh. But uh, just that feeling of people reacting like that to something that you've created in your head and thought of as just, yeah, it's amazing. It's still such a buzz. I still get such a buzz from it to this day. So, yeah, so I did about half a dozen of those kind of gigs. After I did the first one, I'm like, right, I've got to book as many as I can. So I just, I booked quite a few open mic night nights. And then when we moved back to um, to Auckland in 1995... Um, yeah, I just found out where comedy was happening and just did as much as I could and did lots of MCing and improv work and haven't stopped. And that's, God knows, how many years ago was that now? Over 25, probably 27 years or something. <laughs> yeah, amazing.
1: It's, uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a dream, really has. In 2000, you ended up winning the Billy T Award. How did that make mm. you feel after only doing comedy for a few years?
0: Yeah, that was pretty amazing. I, I, um, I, uh, I was a co-winner with... Uh, another guy called Mike Loder, who's sadly no longer with us. He's um, passed away, unfortunately. But um, him and I sort of came up at at the same sort of time. And um, yeah, the Billy T, they were splitting it between people. And um, at that point, it was a joint award. I can't remember what the monetary value was, but um, yeah, it was, God, it felt so good to win it. It's just a nice thing to put after your name. And there's been some great comedians who have, you know, when I think the, I'm pretty sure the first one was Ewan Gilmore and Carol Wilson, I think they won it together. And then it was like um, Sugar and Spice and maybe Brendan Lovegrove to Radar's won it. I mean, there's a big list of comics now, but yeah, it was great. In fact, my, my wife found my yellow towel the other day. I thought I'd lost it. I used to have it on the wall and it just became quite sort of encrusted and started to grow into the wall. So no, I think she's run some fabric softener through it, and uh, and has still found it. So uh, yeah, it's around somewhere, but yeah, Great. that was a nice little career highlight. It was <laughs> awesome, and I mean, what was what was really special too? The the year that I won, it was um, the night was uh, mc by Kevin Smith, who's also you know sadly no longer no longer with us. Huge uh, huge Kiwi acting and comedic talent. So yeah, it's pretty nice.
1: And around that same time, you started working on Kim and Corbett, correct? Mm,
0: yeah, on More FM Auckland. Yeah, mm,
1: how did that gig come about?
0: Well, that was really through knowing Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Corbett. We met each other through doing uh, stand-up at Kitty O'Brien's, um, which was where most of it happened. That was in Victoria Park in Auckland, a room above a pub there. Um, so that was just that was prior to the Classic and Queen Street opening. Um, so I just sort of knew him through that, and I was a big fan um, of him. Him and his brother Nigel, um, the Corbett brothers, used to have a, a musical duo and. They oh, were just hilarious. They're so, so funny. Um, so yeah, I've, I sort of, I'd been doing obviously stand up and I was still doing my day job, which was sign writing. So I'm a sign writer by trade. I did that um, sort of out of school, did a sign writing apprenticeship. And um, and so I was sort of doing that and then doing um, comedy at nighttime as a bit of a hobby. And um, and then I started doing a bit of like radio serial writing. There were a couple of radio serials um, Uh, New Zealand on Air funded ones I think one of them was uh, Starship Cortina and the other one was called News and Briefs and I'm pretty sure David Downs uh, who you may know through his sort of um, cancer journey and stuff um, and also came up sort of through the through the comedy ranks from all those sort of Palmerston North ex-Massey kind of guys who now are all are all dotted throughout the comedy industry like John Bridges he was another sort of cohort of David's and now of course he's um, producer of the project and uh, Paul Yates who was based down in Wellington for a long time is in, and is behind Wellington Paranormal with Jermaine and Tyker and so all these guys that you know they were sort of I guess prior to me and so I sort of looked up to those guys quite a bit so I started doing a bit of writing and um, script writing for these radio series and I guess because of that because I knew Jeremy through comedy um, when him and Kim needed some sort of just an extra comedic idea to bounce some ideas off for their show. I started going in once a week and we started riffing on stuff and we, um, we came up with a sort of a, a, a feature, like a radio serial that would play once, I think once a morning. Yeah. So five a week called millennium. Um, okay. Let me say it now. Millennium moments. It was called. <laughs> and it was kind of one of those, cause it was leading up to, this would be 1999, I suppose leading up to the millennium. So it was kind of like a, um, like a an on this day this happened thing, but it was about things that it, that were happening in the future. So it'd be like um, uh, the year, um, we'll say the date is you know the twenty sixth of August, two thousand and twenty six, and New Zealand Prime Minister Winston Peters has gone, you know, and it was all this kind of sort of what if extrapolated out stuff. So we did that, and uh, they ended up winning a, a radio award for best serial, uh, which is really cool. Um, and then they asked me to come on board full time as their producer. So that was in two thousand, I think. I went full time. So there was the three of us, and then Hilary Barry joined as our newsreader. And so the show was the four of us, and that was yeah, that was sort of golden golden times really. The four of us together there. So um, we all got on extremely well, and still we're still very close to this to this day, and see each other a lot. And uh, yeah, I was there until two thousand and Two thousand and six, maybe six years on Kim and Corbett, and then I moved to The Rock, to the Morning Rumble.
1: Which leads on to the next question. What happened with you yeah. leaving More FM and going to The Rock? What was the story behind that?
0: Well, I basically got um, got asked by some of the big bosses at Moody They said, look, we need somebody on, um, on the breakfast show on The Rock, and we'd really like you to move over. And I wasn't actually that keen because I was really happy where I was at More FM, but I was only doing kind of... I guess backgroundy stuff. I wasn't really on air as myself, um, as Paul Ego. So I was ringing up and pretending to be characters and I would call up and pretend to be Steve Irwin or I'd be the queen or I'd be Helen Clark or I'd be I'd call up and be David Beckham or something, you know. which basically, David Beckham, I'm basically involved in calling up and then forgetting why he was calling. You know. <laughs> he just sort of caught, oh, oh, thanks for your call. I um, go, okay, you called us, you called us, David. Oh, did I? All right. Thanks for the chat. See you later. That was that was, really, that was really the extent of it. Um, and then he called back again a few minutes later saying, did I leave my sunglasses there? So, uh, yeah, I went to The Rock to be uh, to be their producer and on-air person, sort of combination of both. And then um, we got another producer in about halfway through my time there. So I was kind of more just basically on-air as myself. And, uh, yeah, it was great. It was awesome. Uh, We were very lucky once when I moved to the rock, uh, we won best, well, best breakfast show, basically the radio awards, like four years in a row, Mm. which was awesome. And I'm sure it's just a coincidence that that happened after I joined, probably could have, probably could have happened any time, could have happened any time, but it was also probably my fault.
1: Potentially. (laughs) And then after that, you left um, the Rock. Why did you end up leaving the Morning Rumble?
0: Well, that was kind of uh, seven days, really. It had, um, had sort of kicked off and become more of a focus for me. Um, so I was at the Rock. I started at the Rock in two thousand and six, and in two thousand and eight, we recorded the pilot for Seven Days, and then it got funding and got the go ahead. And I think two thousand and nine was. Um, they were the first episode. So, um, probably those first, I guess within the first couple of years it started getting really, really popular. Um, which meant, um, I guess the demand for um, the likes of myself and die for doing more live gigs and corporate gigs because of our seven days profile. So we're getting more gigs of those sort of nature, which I still um, really enjoy doing. Um, so i was still getting up at 4am every day doing breakfast radio and then we would do seven days on a thursday which was a really long day so i'd basically go from um kind of go from you know sort of 4am in the morning through to when we left the radio station which was generally around sort of lunchtime, ish, 12 or 1. Uh, and most radio people at that point would probably go home and have a nap before their <laughs> kids arrived home but i would basically go straight to the seven days studio and then start working on that and work on that until we finished recording that night, which was 11 o'clock. So my Thursdays were huge, which meant Fridays I was a bit of a, I was a bit of a washout. I just had no energy. And so, um, and then with the increase in all the other gigs, I was away a lot more and having later nights. And it just got to that point where I kind of went, I'm just going to, I was starting to get really run down and I wasn't seeing my, my wife and my boys as much as I wanted to. And I thought it's just life's too short for this sort of thing. So I'm like, I've got to let one of these things go. And, um, and uh, choosing the one where I had to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning was a pretty obvious choice. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's sort of how it happened, really. And then, uh, yeah, seven days and uh, live work off the back of that has sort of kept me going along with uh, pack and save, which, is, which has been great. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we never know what's around the corner.
1: Mm. Never say never.
0: That's right. So, yeah, I'd lo- I loved my time in radio. I had a, I had a really good time. Would uh, you go back? Yeah, if it was, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, if it was the right show and the right time, and um, yeah, I'd think about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: Awesome. What were the challenges, but be- um, with switching from radio to TV, and how different are they for someone in your position?
0: Um, well, seven days felt very much like. A radio show to do it because it was um, it was a bunch of mates, you know, taking the piss out of each other and and riffing off the back of what someone else said, which to me is, is the best is the best kind of radio, really. So um, and there's been other shows which have been more structured, kind of you know, look down the look down the camera lens and read what's on the order queue, and I I feel I can do that sort of stuff fairly well as well, although I've got terrible eyesight, so I need to have the text pretty big on the order queue It's literally almost like a word at a time. So I can talk with a fair bit of definition and gravitas. At least that's what it sounds like I'm doing. What I'm actually doing is reading a word at a time. So I can actually do that whole tonight. You're not going to believe, <laughs> you know, see, I mean, that sounds great, but that's literally me waiting for another word to come up each time. Um, <laughs> after the break. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they are very different beasts and, uh, you know, seeing yourself on TV can be a bit of a shock sometimes. Um, but, you know, there is things like makeup which can correct a lot of that. I'm talking about me personally. I don't like the, you know, I've got a, I've based, I'm have i basically a potato with glasses, really. I'm not, not a particularly attractive thing to look at. I've lost, uh, well, I was going to say I've lost all my hair. I actually choose to shave my head like this when my forehead just became so incredibly prominent as it has in the last 10 years i just kind of went what if i was all forehead that'd be awesome and just get rid of all that pesky stubble on the sides <laughs> so that's what i've gone i've gone the full forehead look uh yeah i mean i love both of them for different reasons i like you know that it's um i like the uh I like the kind of, I guess, the excitement and the build-up of kind of television. Okay, we're recording and da 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 But that's also why I love radio, that whole thing of, you know, turning the mic on. You don't know how many thousands or millions of people are, are listening. And <laughs> unless you're pre-recording something, it really is a fly by the seat of your pants a lot of the times. And um, that's, that's when I think I'm kind of at my best, I suppose, really, um, when I'm thrown in that kind of deep end a little bit.
1: Yeah. What are your best memories from seven days? so far
0: oh God there were so many I mean what were we 12 13 years that the di and I were team captains um, I think the first time that we did uh, a big show out of um, out of the studio was when we did a show in Hagley Park in Christchurch after the earthquakes um, uh, in the dome they had this big geodome or something and so we did a big yeah big live show there and um, there was film for TV and that was pretty incredible. Um, and then we've done shows for Camping Week, where we've played in Forsyth Bar Stadium, which is like in the stands of Forsyth, and looking out and seeing a stadium. I mean, they only have a couple of hundred people there as audience for the show, but looking out and being we're sitting, we're in a stadium. It's you know, there's so many great um, great memories. I mean, being able to turn it into a live show, our live touring show that we do at the end of the year, although we did it in June this year because of because um, it had been canned last um, November with COVID, but being able to take it out onto the, um, out onto the road and, you know, do it live on stage is, is pretty special. There's, there's just so many amazing moments. The 300th episode was incredible, um, at Bruce Mason center and yeah, just the roar of people when we came out on the stage is just, yeah, boy, it's, it's really quite humbling. It's awesome.
1: Hmm. How would you say your comedy has evolved over the years and has seven days helped with that evolvement?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I've always I've always wanted to be this sort of comedian who was kind of, um, I guess, reacting to what's happening rather than kind of turning up with written jokes. And I think I've turned and I think I've sort of become a combination of those things. Um, uh, yeah, I think I don't think I don't think I'm a hundred percent there, but there's certainly some nights on the stage when I'm doing stand up where I feel like my head is in the same zone as when I'm on seven days and I'm ripping off, riffing off, you know, I'm bouncing off what Corbett said or what die said. And when I'm in that space, I, I feel like it's, you know, you're just, you're just kind of in that, you're just in the pocket where everything is just coming to you so quick. And um, I look back at some of the early clips that I had on um, pulp comedy and the likes, uh, you can definitely tell who I was trying to fashion myself on. Like when I first started, I was very much into, Bill Hicks. And so my comedy was quite, you know, preachy and cutting people down and quite, you know, that sort of thing. It was quite dark, I suppose, Ang- angryish, I guess. Um, and I look at it now and I really hate it. I don't like it at all. And then uh, I really loved Eddie Izzard. Well, I still love Eddie Izzard, but some of my early pulp comedy stuff you can look at. I've got this really weirdly affected way of talking. Well, it's it's almost like I'm trying to replicate the kind of the sort of stream, you know, that sort of thing that he, the way he talks, he goes, oh, this. And then there'd be some dogs turning up, you know, sort of, he does this kind of almost like you're a little bit blazed, you know? So I would, (laughs) I seem to be trying to emulate that kind of talking. I'm like, why are you speaking like there's an excess of saliva in your mouth? It's so bizarre. (laughs) So I think seven days has made me a better stand up for sure, I -hmm. think. Because um, I don't think my written, my written material is good, but there are certainly comics who have got greater written gags, if you like, than I have. But I think what I'm quite good at is having a story, either a real story of something that's happened to me or the premise of a story. I think I'm quite good at getting up on stage and just starting to tell it overnights and gags will just come. They'll just pop into my head rather than writing a joke down and going, how is this a what's a funny thing to say about this I'd find that really difficult I would much rather just get up on stage without really any idea of where the story is going to end or if there's any funny bits in it because I know that once I start talking I will find something in fact there's a there's a story that I'm doing um, on the tour that I'm doing with Paul Douglas at the moment which is a which is a true story of um, a horrendous thing that happened to me at the dentist <laughs> and um, it still doesn't really have an ending. It doesn't have your traditional punchline or twist at the end. It just kind of finishes, but, <laughs> but the thing is it's, it's peppered with gags like all the way through. So to me, it doesn't really matter. It's just been quite an enjoyable, funny journey rather than kind of a build, 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 maybe there's not heaps of gags. And then there's a massive gag at the end that to me is, if you're building this is just my personal choice. But if you're building routines like that, where you go, okay, well, I'm going to build and, build and build and build and build, and then there's either going to be a massive twist or a big gag or a pun at the end. That's a lot to rely on. You've, got to, you've really got to know that's going to work every single time. Because if it doesn't, you've just spent seven minutes building towards something that hasn't really worked. <laughs> Whereas I would prefer to just go, funny journey the whole way. And some nights it'll be a big laugh at the end when it ends. And some nights, it won't be. It'll just be the same level of laughter it's been all the way through. But it's been enjoyable, I hope, for the whole time.
1: Mm. As a comedian, do you go and watch other comedians live? And when you do, are you able to enjoy the show or are you sitting there thinking, oh, I could do that better or I'd do this differently?
0: Yeah, those things that you just said are the reasons that I don't tend to go. (laughs) Uh, Early on, I did. um, When the first comedy festivals were happening in... In New Zealand, I'd you know go and see Bill Bailey, and you know I still love Bill Bailey and and all those sorts of guys. And I do try and support you know mates who who are doing shows or go and try and see their shows, but because so much of my life is revolves around comedy, um, I mean even pack and save that to me is still still falls under the comedy umbrella of my life. Um, so with that and the corporate work and the live work and the TV work and bits and pieces that I do. When I have my sort of spare time of, you know, going out with some friends or to go and see a show with my wife or all the kids or something, to me, comedy is the last thing that I want to go and see. It's kind of like, no, no, I've done, I've done that. My work day's over. I want to go and see – I'd rather go and see music or just, you know, go and watch a movie or go to something else. So when friends go, you know, oh, we've got um, four tickets to Jimmy Carr. Do you want to come? I'll go, no, thank you. <laughs> It seems so crazy, right? Because he's, he's amazing, he's great. Um, but to me, yeah, it's for those reasons that you say, either I'll go along and I won't be able to relax because I'll be looking at him going, oh, that's a really good way of doing it. I'll, maybe I should think about doing a story that I've got that's similar. Maybe that's the way that I could do it. So I won't be in the moment enjoying it. I'll be overanalyzing. I just, yeah, it's too, too, it's just too hard. It's. It's too hard.
1: Mm. (laughs) Who inspires you and are your inspirations different now to what they were when you were younger?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, comedically, it was, yeah, probably, as I mentioned before, Eddie Izzard is probably the one who inspires me as far as a performer goes, you know, the, um, the way that he does things and develops these kind of um characters within his stories and and then all the other stuff you know the fact that he can do his stand-up comedy shows in like three languages or something ridiculous and then run marathons i mean that's that's not that's not something i'm intending to do but yeah he's he's a pretty incredible guy um to be honest uh, jeremy corbett much as you know he is a he's my best mate really but I've got such a lot of respect for for somebody like that who, was, who has performed comedically at such a high level for so long. I mean, even longer than I have, right? Um, he's just always good. He's just, you know, just solidly great at everything and is really nice to work with, you know? He's just a good... Which is why he's been around for so long. And so, yeah, somebody like him is, you know... I look up to him hugely. Please don't tell him that because I think he thinks... <laughs> I'm an
1: arsehole. We we had him on, um, he's the guest we had on before you, and I can't agree He was the nicest person.
0: Oh, yeah, well, he he puts a lot of that on, Blake. (laughs) uh, No, he is. He's an amazing guy. I love him dearly.
1: What does the future look like for New Zealand comedy in your eyes?
0: Oh, man, it's in a pretty good place, eh? It's in a pretty amazing place at the moment. The, um, you know, the inroads and the... the, uh, the kind of voice that we're uh, portraying overseas and getting noticed overseas is even more you know there seemed even more than it was a few years ago i think you know there was that there was that golden sort of time when you know as far as new zealand getting noticed overseas i mean you know sporting wise we've we've always done it and you know battered way above our uh, average i suppose in that way but i think we all remember those times when you first hear kind of the you know, crowded houses don't dream it's over is number two in the US, and you go, "Oh my god, that's a New Zealand song." And then, obviously, the the flight of the concords evolution and, and Reese Darby and all that, and that was a that was a big moment. And then Taika and all the things that he's done through through film. But you know, the likes of Rosemary Feo and you know how how well she's done in the UK and winning the Perrier and now she's got you know Starstruck, a TV show, and. And there's a big batch of comedians who are working in the UK at the moment. I mean, Alice Sneddon's working with Rose and um, uh, Nick Sanson has is, is just had an amazing run at Edinburgh. got incredible reviews and um, Two Hearts are over there. So there's this whole other kind of, I guess, the next generation down from me, if you like, who are just doing incredible things. And, um, and in Australia too, you know, the likes of Mel Bracewell and, Ursa and Ray O'Leary are on TV over there and it's, yeah, it's it's, re- it's really, really cool. I don't think we're at the stage anymore where you go, oh, well, wow, that's a Kiwi person on TV overseas. It just now just seems to be a natural progression where you go, well, clearly they would be. They're really, really funny. There's no reason why they wouldn't be on TV in America or the UK. So mm-hmm. I think it's in a really, really good place, yeah.
1: Do you miss... The more freedom that you used to have with jokes and with cancel culture being a thing nowadays, do you feel like you have to be more careful with what you say?
0: Oh, look, I don't think so. I think as you, you know, as you sort of mature as a person and mature as a comic, anyway, I think you naturally, well, for me anyway, I think you naturally start talking about different things, anyway. You know, I don't, I'm not talking about the same sort of stuff in my in my um, comedy now that I would have been, you know, when I sort of started in the 1990s. You know, six ninety seven. Um, you know, I would I would have said stuff on stage then that I would never say on stage now. I mean, it wasn't hor- you know, it wasn't horrendous. It wasn't incredibly sexist or racist, but just just you know, I would possibly have done a few accents then that I definitely would not do now. And know that that's you know, and now now it's more about um, I guess as as you get older and have more life experience, you can you can actually talk about what your life has been. So. A lot of my stuff now is, yeah, is real stories about, you know, about my wife, about my boys, about, you know, things that happened to me as Paul Ego, the comedian, you know, rather than just picking a a thing out of the news. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but, uh, yeah, what I do now is certainly, yeah, very different to the sort of comedic style I had
1: when I started. Yeah. So earlier today, I posted on Instagram asking people to send in questions to ask Paul Ego slash the Stickman. Uh, so we did, ah, get, okay. we did get some replies. So question number one: What is your favourite joke of all time?
0: My favourite joke of all yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I'm not sure I, not sure I have one. I, I've always been a big fan of those, those, <laughs> those real long shaggy dog jokes, where it's a really long explanation and then at the end it's a really pithy pun, and the people listening it. It not so much makes them laugh as makes them very angry and that's like 15 <laughs> minutes of their life that they'll never get back again yeah <laughs> there was a there was a one there was one i do remember about this bus conductor who throw people off his bus and he got anyway he, th- he would throw people off his bus somebody died when he threw them off the bus he gets sent to prison um he gets sentenced to the electric chair And um, they try try and kill him via electric chair and it doesn't work. The electricity doesn't doesn't kill him. So they try again, it doesn't work. And then because of the state that he's in or whatever, there's some rule where if you do it three times, it doesn't work. They have to go free. You've got to let them go if you've tried to kill them by electric chair. So they do it three times. And of course, it doesn't work on this bus conductor. And then they do it the third time, it doesn't work. And uh, I'm concertina this joke right down. And he, I'm aware that I have made it considerably worse. But long story short, they try and electrocute him three times as bus conductor. Uh, it doesn't work. And at the end, they say to him, uh, what, what do you think happened? Why did you survive? And he says, I guess I'm just a bad conductor. And <laughs> <laughs> that's the, But that can take about 20 minutes. You know, you go through all the, it's all about misdirection, you know, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you know, the people that he threw off the bus, why are they, you know? So you're doing all this thing, and at the end it's because he's a bad conductor. And people are just like, oh, f- get out, get <laughs> out of my house. <laughs> so they're kind of my favorites, really. And that, I guess, because to me, it's about the journey. And they're the kind of, mm-hmm. they're the sort of stories and that that I like, you know, that funny, kind of weird, rambly kind of shit. <laughs>
1: Yes, those are incredible styles of jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Have you ever been starstruck?
0: Uh, Yeah, a couple of times. um, When I met Azad for the first time, he came into More FM when I was first working there, probably that was about 1999, 1998. He was over here for a tour. I was pretty starstruck then. And um, seeing, seeing Prince on stage like a few months before he died, I got to go to that piano and a microphone tour that he did here. I didn't get to meet him, but he was like literally about 15 feet away. That was pretty incredible. And then probably the most, one of the most recent times was um, uh, Seven Days. We had, um, uh, what's his name? Um, (laughs) I'm obviously so starstruck that I've forgotten his name. Uh, Griff Rees-Jones. We had Griff Rees-Jones on from, um, you know, just English comedy royalty really And it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing meeting him in the flesh, you know, having grown up seeing not the nine o'clock news with him and Mel Smith and Rowan Atkinson and Pamela Stevenson. And, and then alas, Smith and Jones that he used to do with Mel Smith. I was a big fan of that. And uh, yeah, he, yeah, that was, that was really, really cool to have him on
1: the show. What's your coffee order?
0: Oh, look, I've moved into one of those stages in my life where I'm the guy in the queue in front of you where people go, oh, Jesus. But <laughs> I used to be... It's not too bad. I used to just be a flat white guy. Well, I used to drink black coffee for years, and then it just it just got too hard on my guts, to be honest. And so I started drinking flat whites, and you can't drink the same amount of flat whites as you do black coffees because you go, well, wow, that is a lot of milk for one middle-aged man. Um, so I basically, basically I started turning into, you know, like a, I guess like an, I don't know, some sort of big milky omelette inside. So um, I've actually moved on to coconut milk. I really love coconut milk. I love anything coconut. The coconut, I just love coconut taste. It's gorgeous. So I, I'm a coconut flat white guy now, which I really like, and I can have a few of those in the day. My stomach's fine. It's that lovely nutty taste. Oh, it's, it's the business. Beautiful.
1: <laughs> What's um, the... Best question you've ever been asked in an interview.
0: Probably that one you asked just then.
1: Awesome, I'm honoured. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh look, I don't, um, I don't know, but I will. Turn, I can't remember the best question, but the things that do make me laugh is when some somebody is um, either a bit oblivious to the fact that you're there, or just kind of ignores, <laughs> like just says something that's just so just random and unexpected like um I was down in Rolleston a couple of weeks ago we we're doing uh, we did a comedy show there at um in this in this uh, little cafe they sort of set it up like a little venue and it was really cool it went really really well and the waiting staff and that were were big fans they're really excited that we were there and um and when the show finished we we're waiting in the we we're sort of in the kitchen backstage with the kitchen staff and this woman who was obviously a regular of uh, of the uh, of the cafe and knew all the stuff, sort of arrived backstage and um, and the Maitre D's like, Oh, hi Sharon, how are you in And she's like, Oh, uh, look, Paul Ego's here. He's they've just they've just done a show, it's Paul Ego. And this woman went, Fuck dad, have you got any caramel slice left? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just uh, just made me laugh a lot that, you know, you can get to a certain level of fame, but you're still not as good as a really good caramel slice. <laughs> you know, if it was ginger crunch, I could go, well, obviously, ginger crunch takes preference because mm. it's the the best thing of all time. But caramel slice, I find, is just a little bit too sweet. Yeah. But no, she was a big fan. She really wanted, and this was 10 o'clock at night. You know, she's obviously quite an addict. She's obviously run out. She's been through all her baggies of Caramel Slice. She'd be like, I've got to get some. I've got to get me some. Got to get me some. She's driven all the way in at 10 o'clock to get some Caramel Slice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. What interview have you done that's gone most off the rails, if any?
0: Oh, I do remember doing uh, an interview in early More FM days. Um, We were interviewing uh, Carl Urban. And it was Jeremy and Kim and I. And so this is before... We were using mini discs a lot to record um, interviews then because they were really good quality. They were pretty portable little machines. Um, And we had to go and interview him at this Flash Hotel uh, down on the Auckland waterfront. I think it was the Hilton. And we had like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or something with him. So we sit down with Carl Urban and I think he'd just done, what had he done? Like Pathfinder maybe? It was before Judge Dredd anyway, but he'd done it was after his first big American movie, which I think was... Pathfinder I'm not quite sure. Um, So we sat down with him and uh, Kim had his little mini disc recorder and we started um, He hit record and we started uh, talking to Carl Urban. and then I see Kim looking over over at the mini disc recorder and it had stopped recording but we were sort of just in the flow of talking and Kim didn't didn't want to do that thing where we go oh can we just start again so he just left it and just left it running so we literally had a 30-second interview with Carl Urban, but we talked to him for like 20 minutes. <laughs> Essentially, we're here with Carl Irvin, and that was really about it. And that, that was all that we had. But Kim just couldn't bring himself to go, I'm oh, sorry, the MIDI disc is fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so we just kept going.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> um, one of the final questions. Do you look at the comments or have any association with the Stickman Instagram page?
0: I don't look at the comments. I see it pop up from time to time, and they're, yeah, they're usually pretty funny. So I usually just put a like on, and that's all. That's all I look at. I don't look at the comments. I've learned to. I think most um, comics have learned to not look at comments too much on social media. They can be fairly, um, fairly cruel and fairly soul destroying. Um, and uh, yeah, I still go back to that old adage of you know if you if you can't say anything nice about somebody, just just don't say anything at all. Just move on. You know. It's, uh, you know, we've, we've been posting a fair bit um, on Facebook for this um, this Paul Paul Comedy Night tour that I'm doing with Paul Douglas and just putting stuff up and it's been so nice to see people come on and go, oh, you know, the show was awesome last night. Thanks so much. Had a great time. Can't wait to go. And then you have someone who'll just come on and go, I think they're both shit. And you're just like, why You don't even need to put that on. Like if it doesn't interest you, just scroll up to the next thing. Mm. You know, the fact that you've gone out of your way to go your shit. You know, it's just a hor it's a horrible quality in people. Um and that can get to you after a while. Uh so yeah, I try and try and keep off that. If I'm not promoting gigs, I just try and keep off that sort of thing as much as uh, much as I can.
1: Fair enough. And what do you do in your free time? I hear you're quite a golfer.
0: Yeah, I've become quite addicted to golf. Um it's it's just one of those uh, one of those things where it, it sort of fits perfectly into the day of a comedian, because most of my most of my work is evenings, um, apart from the odd sort of pack and save thing, which are during the day. So, and because my um, my sons are both kind of grown up, they're twenty two and seventeen, so who knows where the hell they are. Um, so, if it's a nice day, I'm like, well, because I'm not one of those guys who sits in front of a screen and goes, I'm going to write some comedy, because I prefer to write on stage as I'm sort of thinking about it my days, and once I've sort of done some stuff around the house that maybe I have to do, I'm like, my days are clear. Like I would much rather go and walk around outside for two hours, you know, breathe in the air, get some sun on my face and, and, and practice my swearing by getting some balls. So yeah, I've become quite, quite addicted to it. I think because it's, I think also because because I've been doing comedy for a long time. And I think you're always improving. I don't think I'm at the point where I'm never going to get any better, but I'm at at a sort of, I guess, comfortable level where I could pretty much turn up and do a gig at any time without really stressing too much about it. Like I'm comfortable in my abilities, I suppose. Um, So to have a new thing that I'm not very good at, that I can work on all the time is actually Quite good. I find it mentally quite good to sort of, you know, try and improve on certain things. And you, you know, you're getting outside in nature, and it's, um, yeah, I find it really good for my mental health. And often I'll walk around because I like to play by myself quite a lot, or with another mate. I'll walk around, and perhaps I'll, I might run routines in my head, or or I'll think about a premise for kind of jokes and stuff. And often I find that comes a lot easier than just sitting in front of a screen waiting for thoughts to appear.
1: Mm. If you had to give a younger version of yourself some advice, what would you say?
0: I would say just try and talk in your talk in your own voice and, and be your own person as much as you can talk from, you know, personal experience and, um, and don't take it too personally when gigs, gigs go badly. Cause sometimes you're just the wrong crowd. You, you know, sometimes you're just the wrong, you're the wrong comic for, the right crowd or the right comic for the wrong crowd. Sometimes just things come together that are out of your control, and um, particularly when you're starting out, that can that can feel like you've <laughs> really, really failed. So, um, yeah, just pick yourself up and think about the next gig because you are yeah you're learning something from every single gig. That's for sure. Um, I mean, nowadays, um, because I'm an experienced comedian, nowadays I find it quite funny if if a gig of mine goes badly. Sometimes it's my fault because I've kind of, I've just used the wrong kind of material or I've come, I've come in a bit hot or I've abused somebody in the crowd. I shouldn't have abused or, you know, I'm just in the wrong frame of mind, but a lot of the times it's just like, okay, well, this is, this is the wrong room for the sort of comedy that I'm doing. And you've just got to laugh at how, you know, how poorly it's going. Sometimes there's still, um, they'll still have like, you know, one arm bandit machines going while you're on stage, the rugby might be going on a screen next to you while you're performing. And I just find it funny now. I'm just like, this is, this is basically going to turn into another story, another <laughs> routine, cause this is going so bad.
1: Mm. <laughs> now that you've been on the show, who would you recommend we have on next to be interviewed on beam break?
0: Oh boy. I don't know how many have you done. How many people have you had on
1: this is number nine.
0: Mm-hmm. who's uh who's been the most difficult
1: to get on or just to interview
0: no to, like to work with to interview who's been a real bastard who you were thought if you say no one oh no it's me
1: will not say that man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no one's gonna no one's been a nightmare to work with the one that oh, I mean, damn the, the one that surprised me the most was Corbett but it shouldn't have surprised me cuz he was the nicest guy. I was a bit starstruck when I met him first, but he was yeah, the right. nicest guy. And then as soon as we started, as soon as um, we did the intro, it went from him being nice to immediately taking the piss out of me, which was yeah, a great. great icebreaker, but I should have expected it but was still very shocked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. It's so so cool. Yeah. Oh, look, I think you're spoiled for choice really, Blake. I mean, there's um, you know, there's such a great level of uh, New Zealand comedian out there now and um you know they all have their own their own stories and their own journey so i don't think there's anyone in particular who will go you have to get this person because i think we're really lucky in new zealand if you you know if you got a uh a comedy lineup show now um you know you're going to get a great show there's um you know the the level is just so high it's awesome
1: Hmm. and finally where can the people find you or things you're up to
0: so when does this just go out uh,
1: this goes out in a couple weeks a couple of weeks okay
0: All right. Well, if this podcast is going out um, in a couple of weeks, uh, Blake, you've missed all my gigs. Uh, Well, no, you haven't. You can come and see me in Auckland at The Classic with Paul Douglas. We're doing a a weekend there, October 21st and 22nd, I think it is. That's kind of the end of our Paw Paw Comedy Night tour. Um, I'm doing a gig in Cambridge, I think, in December at the Five Stags. So just look just go um, either on my webpage or just google paul ego live which is spout the same as live (laughs) and it'll bring back the results yes paul ego does still live you're in luck
1: (laughs) awesome paul thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on bean break and chat to me
0: it's a pleasure mate thanks for getting in touch